Well, three weeks ago we spoke about being instruments of God's joy, his orchestra of joy, and how uh, a life of true joy could be seen. And I wonder how in those uh, last three weeks, uh, what that journey has taken you on. We saw in the life of the psalmist that it was through praise, testimony and sacrifice. And that this was also true of Jesus Christ and lastly that it was also to be true of us, those who live in the 21st century. But tonight we're going to look at another aspect of being instruments of God's orchestra of joy. I tried to change the sermon twice. Both times I was told by God to behave myself. So, I just do as I'm told. Or I try to. So, please do turn in your Bibles to page 140. Just get rid of that. And Leviticus chapter 9. Somehow some people already knew that I was going to do that. And let us witness together a scene of great and exuberant joy. So, chapter 9, and we'll start reading at verse 22. Verse 22 of chapter 9. But before we do that, we'll pray. Father, we thank you for this, your written word. We thank you that it's been... uh, used down through the centuries to reveal yourself and to reveal Jesus Christ to people. And may now we, and may now we, your people, be illum- may it be illuminated to us through your Holy Spirit. In his power we pray. Amen. So verse 22. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. And the first seven chapters of Leviticus talk about the different offerings or sacrifices that the nation of Israel was to make to God. And then in chapter 8 we see the beginning of the priesthood and the joyful work of Aaron and the priests. Their main role of service was to act as a mediator between a holy God and the people of Israel who were to be his nation, particularly in the the role of making those offerings and sacrifices from chapters 1 to 7. And in fact, they were the ultimate multitaskers as they seemed equally adept as butchers, doctors, teachers, quality assessors and public health inspectors. Probably candlestick makers as well as bakers. And the passage we have in front of us tonight shows the culmination of this uh, priestly ordination. Israel was to be a nation chosen by God to be his people and to be a shining light of God's glory to the world around them. This nation 
God's treasured and precious people. However, way back in Exodus chapter 19, refused to be a nation of royal priests. Instead, they preferred being represented by Moses and Aaron. So Moses and Aaron have gone into the tent of meeting or the tabernacle to meet with God. This was where Moses and Aaron would meet with the Lord during the travels to the promised land. And the whole nation is waiting for them in expectation. So Moses and Aaron, as we have just read, come out, give a blessing to the people and God's glory appears to the nation. That must have been some blessing that Aaron gave. Whatever his words were in verse 24, they are words that invocated Almighty God's power, presence and peace to be with and upon his people. No wonder the people fell on the ground with their noses in the dirt as an act of joyful worship and praise to God. The burnt offering and fat portions of the altar were consumed in a, in a great fire emanating from the manifestation of the glory of God. So amazing was this sight that a tremendous wave of exuberant joy overcame the people and they fell with their face to the ground. There's probably a mixture of amazement, surprise and fear. That must have been a tremendous sight to behold. Falling face forward was a characteristic method of showing total uh, surrender and submission to a king or a master. And here it's adopted by the Israelites as a symbolic surrender to their God. The infinite, almighty, majestic and glorious God who was living and being worshipped by his people. This God was a holy God and these people were to be his holy people. So there's tremendous joy in the nation of Israel and this is evident in their spontaneous act of submission and their voluntary worship and expressions of thanks to their almighty God. Moses and Aaron had followed God's guidelines obediently and the nation's true joy was in evidence. Not just joy as an emotion, but true joy as evidence through sacrifice, praise and testimony. Now, it would be very nice to stop there, wouldn't it? But the story continues. The Bible is an honest book. We can't cut and paste the bits out that we don't like. And just as the celebrations were concluding, and the priests were taking up their sacred roles, something happens. So now let's continue reading in chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. Aaron remained silent. These two men, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, the high priest, 
start their duties. They take their pans, fill them with hot coals from the fire, place aromatic incense in the coals and offer this to God as an act of worship. The fire from the glory of the majestic Lord comes out and engulfs them and they die. What happened? They hadn't followed the strict guidelines as given by the Lord and had therefore violated all the instructions given to them. Strict regulations were required by sinful humans to be in and work in God's holy presence. How different can these two scenes be? In the first scene, we look at fire representing God's uh, presence and it speaks of his love, his warmth, his purity, his blessing upon his people. Here though, the fire represents a different aspect of his presence through his active holiness and therefore danger and judgment. Who were Nadab and Abihu? They were Aaron's eldest sons and they had received a privileged upbringing accordingly. They had seen God working from close quarters. When Moses went up Mount Sinai to speak with God and to receive the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments, they were there. They had just spent the previous week in training for their new jobs as priests in service to God. No doubt they had witnessed at close quarters the fire we spoke of earlier in Leviticus chapter 9. So they were not only important people, they were also experienced people. Yet in spite of all this, they did what was contrary to the guidelines that was given to them. They were disobedient. We don't know why they did it. It could have been old hairy legs, you know, Satan, whispering in their ears, going, saying, go on, you have a go now. Your dad didn't it, didn't he? Your dad is an old fella. You have a go, you're young. Second you. No worry about it, those guidelines God gave you, it'll be alright. No worries, my son. You felt good and happy, didn't you? Trust yourself. Now when I wrote that out, I had the image of Del Boy from Forty Fools and Trotters in my head for some reason. Don't know whether Satan wears a woolly coat or not, I don't know. And it could have been pride, jealousy or impatience that led them to disobey these guidelines. Or in light of 10 verse 8, perhaps they had too much wine. Perhaps they were caught up in the excitable fever of the joyful occasion and wanted joy like a drug, as we talked about last time. What may have been seemed right to them most certainly wasn't right to God. Perhaps they thought they were doing God a big favour by zealously embracing their roles as priests and wanting to offer as many sacrifices as they could. We will never know. But we do know that regardless of the reason for doing so, they actively disobeyed this God. They chose to do it. Nobody forced them. Not only was it a fragrant disobedience, but it was also a flagrant disobedience. In offering an unauthorised or strange fire, they had disregarded God's instructions for the timing, the place and the manner of these sacrifices. They had been set apart and dedicated to a life of serving God and his people and had now paid the ultimate consequence for their disobedience. Their disobedience is referred to again in Leviticus chapter 16 in the regulations for the annual day of atonement. Regulations probably given to ensure that this never happened again. 
Aaron, their father, was silent, stunned, no doubt. In Australia, we call him a stunned mullet. Mullet's kind of fish. He had seen at first hand that in a life of true joy, God requires obedience over sacrifice. Aaron and his remaining sons were not to mourn or appear to be sorrowful. This was to signify the the seriousness of his son's disobedience. And to us that may seem harsh, but Aaron and his remaining sons had to prioritise service to God over commitment to family. This was symbolic of joy. Jehovah over yourself, if you like. Aaron and his other sons had to remain engaged in priestly duties and responsibilities. Other members of the family were allowed to mourn, however. Now, today in the 21st century, we have a problem. We are quite comfortable with a God of love, peace and joy and kindness. In the movie Crocodile Dundee, Mick Dundee announces that me and God, we'd be mates. Jesus was a fisherman and I'm a fisherman. And if that's the limit of our vision of God, then may I suggest our vision and opinion of God is too small. Perhaps our God is too nice and too comfortable. Yet a problem seemingly remains, how on earth can a God of love, peace, gentleness, kindness and joy act like this against two of his dedicated servants? Is this not a God who is at odds with himself? The first thing we can say here about God is that while he is most assuredly a God of love, kindness, gentleness and peace, he is also a God of judgment, a God who judges. That is plainly evident from the passage. And we need to acknowledge him not only as a great lover, but also as a terrifying judge to behold. Not just a friend, but also a just judge. And the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God who is a consuming fire. Perhaps he had this passage in mind when he read it, when he wrote those words. Remember also that God always, always prefers obedience over sacrifice. We all have, I am sure, at some point, like to think of God as being all love and never judging. I certainly have. People say, it'll be all right in the end because the love of God conquers all. Well, that love involves judging. The judgment of God, however, is unbiased. God shows no favouritism and he is always just and he is always right. It's a reflection of his mercy that nobody can claim that God is unfair. But God is not merely a God of mercy, peace and love but also, as we have seen, he's a God who judges and administers justice impartially in accordance with his mercy, peace and love. And then fourthly, not only is he a God who judges, but he is also a God who has great wrath as part of his character. It's an essential, permanent and indelible part of his character. His wrath may be slow to burn, but it's still anger and wrath. The holiness of God requires that he punish sin through his wrath. 
What sort of God would he have been if he had not done what he did to Nadab and Abihu? What if he said, that's okay boys, you'll get it right next time. Kushti. Then he most certainly would be seen as a capricious, unjust, fickle and hostile monster of a God if you like. Now I know it's not a popular, a popular subject in churches these days. Most churches mumble when it comes to passages like this from the Bible. And while most sections of our society need parts of the church, view God as a doddery, benevolent being up there in his rocking chair in the sky and mildly when people disobey him. But God is not a benevolent grandfather in the sky in a rocking chair. And neither is his anger or his wrath unwarranted, immoral, cruel, fickle, spiteful or capricious. God's wrath is always to administer and mete out a divine, loving justice which corresponds to God's innate and essential characteristics and attributes of light, perfection and holiness. That's the picture given by all the Bible writers. When we speak of a perfect God in human terms, whether that is as a wrathful judge or a tremendous lover, it reflects our imperfect limitations of humanity. We were made in the image of God, not the other way around. And secondly, God's honour was at stake. He is both zealous and jealous for his own honour and his name. He said so. And he can only act within the confines of his own characteristics and attributes. And he must always, always work out of his immutable holiness. God, who was passionate about living in the centre of his people, and there was no way he could allow renegade priests to actively disobey him and defile the place where he was to live. Nadab and Abihu were punished because they worked in his immediate presence, as illustrated by verse 3. Among those who approach me I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people I will be honoured. If God had not punished them, then that would have made God out to be a hypocrite, a liar, acting contrary to his own essential nature and he would be seen as a God who was impotent and seemingly having multiple personalities. This story illustrates that these two guys had to serve as an example, which is why we have the story. And then Nadab and his brother Abihu broke the guidelines given by God on how to enter into his presence. They took the wrong fire, went at a wrong time and were ill-prepared for such an occasion. They entered a place of God's holy presence in a sinful and actively disobedient state. People full of sin can never enter into a place where God resides because God is uniquely holy, sinless and is perfect without fault or defect. Nadab and Abihu chose for whatever reason, either intentionally or unintentionally, to break God's guidelines in how, where and when to offer a sacrifice. There is no indication, however, from the biblical text that they are eternally separated from God at their death, as in judgment of their sins, but rather it seems they were judged according to what they did with their abilities, talents and gifting as ministers and his servants. 
So what's all that got to do with us today, several thousand years later in the 21st century, you may well be asking. Over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see that the nation of Israel were to be a people of service, separated out for their God. Under the terms of the covenant God had made with them through Moses, there was the core of God's agreement with them. It commenced with this stipulation. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. This covenant was with the nation of Israel in order that those who believed God's earlier promises to Abraham could know how to live a life that was worthy of being God's people to live a life relating socially to God and relating socially to each other. It was also to show how humanity could approach God on God's terms and God's terms alone and not on their own conditions. God was and is a perfect and holy God. His people Israel were to be a holy and separated people of service and they were to reflect God's glory and greatness to the other nations. This covenant was only in place until their Messiah would come and he made the perfect sacrifice. All the Old Testament covenants pointed towards the time in the future when the Saviour Messiah would come. God would come himself to save his people. The Mosaic covenant was never meant as a means towards salvation. It was given that they could realise the helplessness and the futility of their own efforts to save themselves and the need of God's help. One day, there would be a new covenant between God and humanity, and this Mosaic covenant would be fulfilled. So, what is this new covenant all about? There are four primary features. Firstly, God will write his law on the hearts of people. Secondly, God will be their God and they will be his people. And thirdly, God will indwell people and they will be led by him. And lastly, all sins will be forgiven and removed eternally. This new covenant was and is sealed only through the perfect sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus on the cross. His blood ensures the truth of this new covenant. His death pays the penalty for the sins of all people who choose to say yes to God and follow him. This new covenant finalises what the Mosaic covenant could only point to. The followers of God engaged in a dynamic relationship of joy with a God who loves them. No longer would human priests need to mediate between God and man because Jesus Christ, the full visible manifestation of God, would fulfil that role as mediator and all people would have access to God through him who was our high priest. Amazing stuff. You and I have instant access to almighty God. And sometimes we take that for granted. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence and assurance 24 hours a day, seven days a week, however months there is in the year. 
And it's all because of the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. God no longer dwells in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle or in a temple made of stone. He now lives in each believer. Immediate access, guaranteed. Amazing, and yet how often do we not avail ourselves of these opportunities? But it's more than that, because as royal priests of the new covenant, for that is what we are, we too are called into a joyful life of obedient service to God. And if you want to know what it means to be a royal priesthood, read the first part of Leviticus up to to chapter 9. That's your homework. And we're called to service. Just as it was for Aaron and the Old Testament priesthood, when we serve and minister, God's honour is released. This is done because service is to show the beauty and glory of the God to other people. Serving, service and ministry are never to be about what we as mere humans can get out of it. When that is the motive, God is neither honoured nor glorified. God's glory and supremacy is to be the ultimate reason for our service. God is both zealous and jealous for his glory and honour to be upheld. Those two priests from chapter 10, they can testify to that, I am sure. And as Christians, as part of our life of true joy, we are called to serve and to minister. Whoever you are, you are called to serve and minister wherever you are, in your workplace, your school, not just the church. And we are called to exhibit and show our true joy, just as Aaron and his family were called into a lifetime of obedient service to Jehovah God. Their joy motto was to be Jehovah over yourself. And for us, true joy is to be Jesus over yourself. Each of us here tonight is called to perform a unique uh, serving and ministerial function. As I said, in your workplace, your school, wherever you go, even down at Tesco's, well, maybe not Tesco's. And showing love, serving each other and giving to each other uh, a practical outworking of our joyful obedience to God. The ministries of Nadab and Abihu were cut short and hallmarked with disobedience. Our ministry, and as I said, all Christians have them, is to be hallmarked by obedience born out of love for God and for him alone. Devoted obedience to God born out of a desire to see God glorified regardless of what other people say or think. And we're not left alone to serve in our own power. We will most certainly uh, fail if that was the case. God himself has lovingly equipped all those who follow him and have equipped them to serve. God the Holy Spirit who lives inside each believer under the new covenant has endowed each Christian with gifts, talents and abilities for that purpose, service of God. That is so that the whole church is built up and that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. God wants you and I to be active in service, lifelong service, hallmarked by loving obedience to him, which reflects our joyful dedication to him, to his praise, honour and glory. 
And then finally, just as God's judgment was upon Nadab and Abihu, the Bible also tells us that all those who follow Jesus Christ will be judged according to what they've done, with what God gave them. That includes any spiritual gifts, uh, talents and abilities that we have. This judgment will not be for our salvation, because we have decided to follow Jesus Christ. Judgment for our sins has already fallen on the one true God-man, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross. Of our sinfulness we've been set free and declared innocent. If we're here tonight, we've accepted God's free offer of salvation by grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone, then we are declared right with God and we are in a joyful relationship with him. Again, it's amazing. We take it for granted. However, our belief and our faith are to be visibly manifested through joyful, obedient service of and to God and him alone. This judgment is not for your salvation, as I said, but it's for rewards. As followers of Jesus Christ, God will ask you and I to give an account of ourselves and we will be judged according to what we have done with what we've been given. The quality of our work will be tested and our motives exposed. Either we did things for God's glory or we did them for our own glory. We'll give an account of the opportunities and the abilities entrusted to us as instruments of God's orchestra of joy. Joyful service. For those of us who would call ourselves Christians, the Bible is very clear. You are called to lovingly and obediently serve him. A life of true joy is seen in obedient service to the glory of God the Father through God the Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of God the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Tonight, if you're engaging in either intentional or unintentional acts of disobedience, then you need to turn your life around to one of utter obedience to the God you profess to follow. As a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you as a seal of your salvation. Your body, believe it or not, is the temple where God now resides. I don't look in a mirror. You can't hide from him. So you may as well choose to be obedient to him in a, in a life of joyful service, exhibiting that true joy and the hope that you have in him. Just as joy followed Moses and Aaron's obedience in Leviticus chapter 9, so too can it be for those of us who are willing to lovingly serve him obediently. And I've got to say this, lastly, before we close. If you are not a Christian here tonight, then please do make yourself known to us afterwards and we would love to talk to you about how you can become a Christian. While you have breath, it's not too late to start this life of joyful obedience to a loving God and enter into a living and dynamic relationship of true joy with him. Don't leave it so late that you incur God's judgment upon you for your sins and that you have everlasting separation from him and others. God does indeed love you and he is calling you to come into a dynamic, living, vital relationship of true joy with him today. Take the opportunity today. 
Come and follow Jesus Christ. He is calling you to respond. Let's pray. Father, once again we thank you for this, your written word. We thank you that we can learn the lessons of history as we did tonight. Pray that each one of us here tonight would go out in to, ser- to serve you in the world with joyful obedience so that all the glory and the honour of everything we do will be to you and to you alone. And we ask this through Christ our Lord, in the power of the Spirit who indwells us. Amen.